Just before we get into today's episode, I want to cast your ears over here to this promo for a few minutes and explain why you might be missing out if you're not using Adobe Express. You've heard of Adobe, right? The chaps that brought you Illustrator, InDesign, and who hasn't been asked, has this been photoshopped? Adobe is a household name. But have you heard of Adobe Express? I hadn't until the back end of last year, and then, well, I did. Now, I'm not saying that in a few years' time, people will be asking you, where were you when you discovered Adobe Express? But they may ask why you didn't start using it sooner. Using Adobe Express allows endless opportunities to scale up your creatives and improve your efficiency and productivity, as well as anything I've seen or used. Creating and editing all your creative output with more customizable templates than a Rubik's Cube has variations. Well, all right, maybe not 43 quadrillion, but you get the idea. And that is just your basics. It's the funky little features that make a difference. Removing backgrounds from videos and images, resizing them, converting files, QR code generation, and animating your audio are all options that come in really useful and stop you scratching around over multiple apps to resolve simple issues. If you don't want to miss out on any of this, use one of the links in the show notes that will take you to a free trial of Adobe Express. Or why not supersize it and trial the complete Adobe Creative Cloud package, which includes Adobe Express, as you'd imagine. Oh yeah, bonus point. If you're already a Creative Cloud user, Adobe Express is right there waiting for you. Now let's do it. Obviously, I'm not encouraging people to stop talking to other people, but, you know, rather than just asking, you know, the more experienced engineer that works with you what his opinion is, you, you can now basically ask something that's synthesized the opinion of thousands or millions of engineers over a period of many decades. That sounds like a massive opportunity to me. Welcome to Construction Disrupted, the ultimate podcast for the construction industry, exploring the limitless possibilities at the dynamic intersection of construction and technology. Wow, that's a mouthful. Delve into the latest topics, news, events, expert insights, and marketing that are shaping the industry right now and in the future. We'll hopefully sprinkle a little bit of humor in there for you as well. I'm your guide, Peter Sumpton, and I run a construction technology marketing agency, Build Different. If you're ready to embrace disruption and unlock the potential of the construction industry, keep on listening and be part of the conversation that's reshaping the future of construction. If you're not, uh, I really wouldn't bother. It's it's probably not going to be that interesting for you. Whether you're a construction technology professional or just part of the construction industry in general. This podcast is your go-to resource for staying informed, inspired, and of course, connected. Speaking of connected, the best way you can help to support this podcast is by sharing it far and wide and leaving us a five-star review wherever you download your podcasts. Right then, let's go and build different and get disruptive. Today, we're delving deep into a topic that's rapidly transforming the way we build our world, data. Data is the lifeblood of the modern construction industry, reshaping everything from project management to safety protocols, and even the very designs that shape our cities. As the construction industry continues to evolve, adopting innovative technologies at an unprecedented pace, the effective use of data is emerging as a critical catalyst for progress. It's not just about bricks and mortar anymore. It's about bits and bytes too. At the forefront of the UK construction technology industry, data is being harnessed for good to drive efficiency, sustainability, and safety in construction projects of all sizes. But data is never a one size fits all. As each set of data is collected, analyzed, and leveraged differs slightly due to the nature of the fragmented industry, meaning we must continually look for different ways to make this information work for us humans. 
Look for different ways to make this information enhance decision-making processes, streamline construction operations, and ultimately construct a future that's more connected and responsive to the demands of our rapidly changing world. To help us unravel the complexities of construction data, we're chatting to Ian Gordon, author of Data and the Built Environment, a book that helps to explain how data and the digital technologies that use data can help the built environment sector deliver value to society. Simply put, it's a love story about the built environment and the data it produces. When not writing, Ian helps normal people like me use data for the public good, covering all manner of technical subjects such as deep breath, the cloud, ontologies and knowledge graphs, digital twins, data models, BI, interoperability, UI, UX, APIs, open data standards, decision support, automation, and that all important craft beer. Ian has worked on a range of high profile projects for Highways England, Network Rail, Transport for Wales, Transport Scotland, Thames Tideway Tunnel, and most recently, Houses of Parliament Restoration and Renewal. Ian, hello and welcome. Hey. Thank you for the introduction. That was that was great. I loved every minute of that. It's nice to <laughs> yeah. I was like, that actually sounds quite good. I quite like that. <laughs> Fantastic. Uh, did I miss anything? Um, I don't know. Like, not really. There's yeah. I think you added some stuff, if anything. So that's uh, that's great. <laughs> good, good marketing right away. That's what we're here to do. Make a few things up amongst all the, the truisms. Tell me a little bit, before we get started, tell me a little bit more about that craft beer. Have you got a favourite? Are you just a little bit of a connoisseur? Do you just sample? Uh, it became a slightly unhealthy obsession. Um, obviously, the uh, the whole craft beer industry kind of blossomed in the uh, in the 2010s uh, with, the, with the rise of Brewdog and, and those sort of people. Um, mm -hmm and a lot of the influence from the States in particular. And I think that the culture became essentially, there's an app, because there's always an app, and the, the obsessives, it became kind of basically like Pokemon. You had to find the weirdest, usually strongest, rarest beers, and then take a picture of you drinking that beer and it, 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 in a quite unhealthy way. It, it became all about <laughs> how, how many you could have and how many different ones and, 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 and all of that stuff. Um, I'm kind of, uh, and I got really into the data side of that. So like, <laughs> of it's course, quite quantitative, you know, there's like scores for the different styles and stuff. Um, so I used to do little articles and analysis on, on that sort of thing, which was fun, but fundamentally alcohol's bad for you and treating alcohol like it's Pokemon isn't necessarily a great life decision. And I've, I've kind of learned that one in the long run and tried to chill out a little bit. Okay, cool. Right. Noted. <laughs> life, life, life lesson number one. There you go. Start on a diner. Alcohol's bad. <laughs> yeah. Well, let, let's let, let's bring it back up and, and focus uh, first and foremost on on your book, uh, Data and the Built Environment. I've just got a, a quote from your book, um, and then I'll get your take on on this challenge that we seem to face within construction. Um, which is a bigger challenge, but this is a, a subset of that challenge, I, I feel. So uh, what you put was, um, in a sector that does not yet always think in terms of data, data problems are often explained by human failure. However, many of the issues that bedevil mega projects have their origin in the use of complex data, pro in the use of complex data processing challenges, including optimism bias in cost estimates and benefits projects working around bottlenecks in the program, agreeing on a regulated asset-based funded model or monitoring and managing supplier performance. Okay, that mm. was a long-winded way of saying or what I'd like to know, what, what I felt you were trying to get at is that there's a bit of a skills shortage or skills knowledge gap from a human perspective. And we hear this all the time within construction that there's a skill shortage, but the subset of that I feel is that there's a massive need for people that know the data more, like data analysts, for example. Is this your take on things? Where are we in this skills shortage from a data perspective? I think I think there's a subtlety there. 
listening to that made me realize that I need to write shorter sentences. <laughs> but, um, aside, aside from that, uh, so in in the, the, the purpose of writing, apart from it just being a generally self-indulgent exercise, it is to try and to a certain extent explain to myself some of the stuff that hasn't been making sense to me in this industry or this sector over the years. You know, I've been around here long enough to feel like I have a sense of the place, but not long enough to feel like I'm part of the furniture just yet. Mm -hmm. um, and it has struck me that we live in this weird duality of you go to like Digital Construction Week and, and it always feels like, or London Build or UK Construction Week or whatever your favorite conference is. And it always feels like you're like two weeks and one purchase order away from massive digital transformation and all your problems being hmm. solved. And then you go back to the office and everything takes forever and you look at the, the sort of track record of the industry and it doesn't seem to be getting better no matter how much money we mm -hmm. spent on digital stuff and i was just trying to make sense of that and, and i think part of what i came away with is we we have a it, it's a storied sector you know there's there's professions like architects and quantity surveyors and project managers that have been you know, in, in professional bodies for hundreds of years, you know, engineers should have started with engineers, of course, you know, these are rightfully so respected professions with a massive history of uh, accomplishing things behind them and, you know, huge bodies of literature and that sort of thing. And, and yet that's, that's a great asset to have, but it's also a sort of, um, it comes with a lot of baggage, right? It comes with very specific ways of mm. doing things, you know, a culture that um, rewards certain behaviors and certain ways of working. And it's not so much long-winded responses. It's not so much a skills shortage in the sense that we need to, from my perspective, at least funnel lots and lots and lots of like computer science grads into the industry and like something miraculous happens i think that would just be a recipe for disaster i think it's about understanding how to incorporate a data perspective into these existing professions in addition to creating enough of a critical mass of data specialists as well to, to complement that it, it's kind of a bit of both right and i think we've mm. seen in the industry over the last certainly whilst i've been working in it you know, all of the big engineering consultancies have started recruiting data teams. They all have data science teams. Probably by the time this podcast comes out, I'll be running one of them. So it's not like there's a lack of capability in that space. What there is is a lack of how do we integrate that capability into the stuff that we've been doing for, you know, a couple of hundred years at this point. And I think that's that's the interesting question. Um, mm -hmm. and, and that's where you need there's almost a skill gap of people that can bridge the professions, if that makes sense. Yeah. Do you think yeah. that will get easier over the next decade or so with this transition or increase of digital natives coming into the industry just because of that age group that will be coming through very shortly? Do you think there'll be, a, a, a they'll almost demand this technology and information and data rather than be born into an industry where it's we've always done it like this i hope so but sometimes i worry that the opposite's going to happen I, I think you know there's already a a bit of cognitive dissonance between what you can accomplish using consumer electronics in your private life and what you can accomplish at work using enterprise mm. it it, it and obviously you need a bit of that tension for things to get better. But my concern is that that gap widens uh, so much to the point where it's, um, I don't know, it's almost borderline intolerable to work as a, as a digital native, as you say, to, to come in and almost, almost surrender all that privilege at, the, at your office door <laughs> so that you can keep doing the same old thing in Microsoft Excel forever. Uh, I could, I'm sure that does already chase people out of the sector uh you know particularly mm. people early in your in their career that are maybe trying to figure out what they want to do with their lives um and, and i can see that becoming 
more of an issue rather than less of an issue as, as we move as we move forward. Oh, okay, so let's let's look at potential solutions then. Um, in doing research for for this podcast, I read a, a really interesting article, really succinct that that you put together for for BIM Plus. Um, and there was a, a statement in there which you put, we build, maintain, and operate the built environment through the coordinated labor of human actors. This means that our success in applying data to the built environment relies upon our ability to improve the flow of knowledge between individuals and computers. So how do we do that? How do we better improve that flow of knowledge? Yeah. <laughs> that's what i'm trying to figure out if once you figure that one out there's, there's a lot of strands you can fill on here right um right. you know i think that's why one neglects user interface design at one's peril um mm -hmm. i think that's why we see adoption as so important in deploying any sort of technology and it's often a bit that's kind of neglected um, or assumed will happen organically. Um, I think more abstractly, and I think it's probably something I was talking about there, was whether there is the opportunity to, through particularly through AI, realize some shortcuts in that space um, where that hasn't been possible. You know, I, some of my first experiences in this industry were working for Network Rail, and um, which I loved as a consultant and basically having to produce models to justify investment decisions to the regulator. And we wanted those, obviously we wanted those models to be based on reality, right? Mm. And what that, what that meant in practice was to a surprisingly large extent, trying to get the models to come up with the same answer as a veteran engineer would come up with. <laughs> um, and that that in and of itself was an exercise i didn't really realize at the time but it was an exercise in trying to translate the knowledge that's in people's heads into a digital replica or it mm. uh, there's this idea of the knowledge cycle which I, I kind of was quite taken with you know getting tacit knowledge out of people's heads turning it into explicit knowledge in a digital environment and then using that explicit knowledge in the digital environment to then inform tacit knowledge in other people right and yeah. if you state the obvious here if you get that right that's how um i've been reading a book called is it it's either why information grows or how information grows but it's it's the this idea that the real limiting factor in human endeavors including the built environment is individuals can only fit so much knowledge in their head so the only way that we manage to do anything complex is by externalizing that knowledge and putting it into some sort of solid object that allows other people to make use of it, whether that object is the written word in a book or a dashboard on Power BI or like an actual physical product that people can use and then replicate. You know, that's how we, man, I'm going on some tangents today, apologies. That's, that's how we scale our understanding and make sure it's sustainable. And the, the, that's the opportunity with digital tools is to make that process faster more accurate uh, but it's also the challenge because basically you're competing against people that not so much competing but you're trying to complement something that's already really good right mm. uh, uh, someone with 40 years i'm thinking of a fellow i used to work with called nigel ricketts who at the, at the point i'd worked with he'd basically built all the bridges 40 years ago and now all the bridges were deteriorating and needed work so obviously the person to go to to ask what to do with the bridges was the person that built them 40 years ago and there was it quickly realized there was no way in hell that i was going to build a model that was going to come up with a better answer than nigel ricketts hmm. was going to come up with so my job became how do i build a model that does what nigel ricketts would have said which was really really difficult in part because the information in Nigel's brain about those bridges was way more detailed than anything the organization had actually managed to record about those bridges. So hmm. the organization knew it's a brick bridge. It's more or less this size, it's more or less this old. None of the detail and the richness that allowed Nigel to make his decisions was actually externalized into a way that other people could make use of it. 
I've never thought about it from that flow of knowledge from a human to a computer. So that flow of knowledge from a computer to a human is better. But I suppose that makes sense, doesn't it? Because somebody has to program I, it. We have to get that information from somewhere. That that's I, I'm not an AI expert at all, but that's my interpretation of this generation of AIs. They're they are better at getting not so much getting information out of people's heads because that sounds creepy, but taking the information that people have already externalized in the form of the internet um, and turning that into useful information that other people can use. Yeah, Hopefully. for sure. <laughs> so let's let's stick with the information or, or data, if you like. Um, another quote from, from the book, if you, if you don't mind, is uh, you wrote, to work with the built environment is to reckon with complexity, which I think we can all absolutely fundamentally agree. Uh, complexity rarely stems from the assets or the technology, but from the human, societal and political context. Uh, data solutions that do not reckon with this complexity are unlikely to realize lasting change. So take, taking that complexity, how do we know that the data and information we're looking at is reliable to make valid decisions? It, it's culture, right? So there is a, and it's it's a culture of, of ownership, which is a really easy thing to say, but we are not in a position yet where the majority of our data is captured automatically, right? Most mm -hmm. information in this industry still, as we've already talked about, goes through the minds and the hands of human beings before it is collected. Um, or is at least interpreted and validated by human beings before it's being used. Um, and therefore, people need to feel empowered, and, or rather people need to be empowered to own and change that data uh, to best fit reality. And I think where we, part of what your first question was about this, this lack of data skills and fitting data into existing professions is not having fixing data be an, God, an IT problem, not even having it being a data team problem, but rather fixing the data, keeping the data high quality being interpreted as a, a responsibility of whoever happens to be closest to it at any given point in the, in the data and project lifecycle, right? Mm -hmm. um, I was a latecomer to the data governance philosophy, but I really see the value of creating data stewardship as a discipline within organizations, not as a new role or a, an external role, but as something that you do as part of your job. And I think where we failed at times as a profession and where I failed personally is explaining to people that even though they may not realize that data is part of their job, there's almost nobody on a, any sort of modern infrastructure project or organization that doesn't use some sort of data on a day-to-day -day basis. So making people aware that that is the case and kind of infusing them with the understanding that, hey, this is an opportunity to make my job easier, better, more efficient, whatever it happens to be, because I get to own the data that I'm using. I'm not subservient to IT. I, to provide me with data, this is something that I can that I can own myself. And, and likewise, if it's not working, I don't have to just sit and whinge all day about how the database is broken and no one ever fixes it. Like this is there's actually something I can do about that. Um, and again, going back to the bridges example, you know, pretty much my entire career is just trying to fix what I saw there. Of there was data on the assets that did not reflect reality. But there was the, the organization had created no way for the people who were closest to the assets, the people that were maintaining them, that were inspecting them, whatever, to fix the data. So they knew it was wrong. They would moan about it being wrong, but there wasn't a, an edit button that allowed them to fix the data when they showed up and realized that, oh, this culvert isn't where it's supposed to be, or this bridge isn't the size it's supposed to be, or whatever that additional information they had in their minds was that wasn't reflected in the corporate data set. Mm. 
do you think with, within the industry then there's that lack of knowledge for those particular things and knowing that there is something that can help solve the solve those problems that's you know more digital more technical is there a, a lack of knowledge and information to point people in that direction i think we've um we've we've kind of failed to create systems and ways of working that allow interactivity right we've seen data as something that we push to people we have our mm enterprise asset management system. It's got our regulated asset base. Everything in here is our list of what assets we have and where they are and all that stuff. Here's here, here, Mr. Operative, here's your task list and the associated assets go and do it. And it's not occurred to us to include the functionality to create that feedback loop, even though we live in a world, in a social media world where that there is a bi-directional flow of information, right? YouTube isn't just somewhere that you go to watch cat videos. You can upload your own cat video. You can edit your so own tweets. Yeah, exactly. You can post your own pictures on Instagram. It's it's a bi-directional flow of information. We don't have a bi-directional flow of information in this industry. And I think part of that comes from a conservatism around, ooh, our data is important, which it is, and therefore it has to be mm -hmm. sacrosanct, and therefore we can only let three people in an organization of 50,000 change the data because otherwise it'll be wrong as if it's not already wrong and and so there's that risk aversion that stops us from making use of the very resources that could fix the problem because we're worried about that one in a hundred instance where someone just writes a bunch of nonsense in a database it isn't caught and therefore we make bad decisions based on that nonsense um, and i think that's a that's a loss of imagination uh, and it, it's it's not something that's easy to fix but it's something we need to fix i was convincing so, myself as i spoke there i became very <laughs> very convinced by my own argument as i made it up <laughs> uh, yeah <laughs> okay well continuing that argument do you do you even think it's in do you even think it's possible to have that free flow of information uh, within this industry then? I hope so. I think it's how mm. do you establish me mechanisms for trust, right? Yeah. And um, we live in a world where there's plenty of crowdsourcing of, you know, you go on the BBC News, you can send them videos and stuff, right? It, there's there's the, the concept of crowdsourcing, even amongst the general public have, has been established. Why can we not arrive at a similar process for people that work for us that like we've given them jobs we must trust them to some extent why why do we not trust them enough with the information that they're using to do their work that, that strikes me as, as strange um, mm -hmm. and obviously one would like to think that we can be quite sophisticated in terms of how we validate and audit what they are sending back to us to make sure that we catch the truly absurd stuff or the mistakes. Let's just say, let's assume they're honest mistakes. Let's assume that everyone's doing, trying to do their best because I think by and large they are, but yeah. honest mistakes will happen and we need a way of, of capturing those. I think I think that's a more interesting avenue of inquiry as to how do we do that than how do we lock it down so that no one can ever do anything themselves. Yeah, I, I find that concept a little bit bizarre as well. Uh, in terms of the, the locking it down and, and not having that free flow of information because just to, to back up what you said, why would you employ somebody that you don't trust? Yeah, errors happen, human errors happen, but why do you employ somebody that you don't trust to do something that you're asking them to do? It's, you, mm. you wouldn't. So you only employ the people that you trust, therefore they should be able to help you with, with data and, and, and utilizing that data for good. Of course. And, you know, we, it's going back to the point about the different professions and such, like we, we often use that as a reason to silo information and you know, the, the engineers should have access to the engineering data. Nobody else that, you know, commercial people should be the only ones that can see anything with a pound sign on it. Uh, there's, there's clearly a logic to that, but again, I think it's, uh, I don't know. There's the, there's the kind of information wants to be free philosophy that I as a data person is quite um, appealing to me 
um, and I don't I don't see that reflected enough in the organizations that I work with. Um, yeah. Do, do you think you, you know you, you were talking about um, that cognitive bias before? Do you think that that impacts it here, um, in in a strange way, in that in our daily lives, you know, we're, we're told how unsecure our data is online and how, you know, passwords are found and your data has been breached and all that kind of stuff. Um, do you think that in our, our daily lives impacts our, the trustworthiness of, of, of our employees or even ourselves um, to have that free flow of information? Yeah, and I think there's a, no one wants to be the guy that was, or the girl that was responsible for a data breach, right? Mm. Um, no one wants to be the person that signs off on publishing data that it then turns out shouldn't have been published. And, and there are obviously parts of our infrastructure that absolutely should be kept as secret as possible or reasonably secret. You know, there, there is appropriate ways of, of um, categorizing such things but the vast majority of any country's infrastructure by its very nature is in the public domain right like you can literally go and figure out where all the bridges are and the power lines and the and the roads and, and stations and, and that sort of thing mm -hmm. uh, and i i've always struggled with arguments that are made for protecting information that is already in effect in the public domain by virtue of being part of the real world that's that's where i struggle mm -hmm. before you get on to the infrastructure like the it infrastructure challenges of making data available which are not you know inconsiderable you always have to get permission to publish the data and that's that is a that's a difficult thing it's a difficult mm. thing to do um, and i i don't think it's uh i don't think it's as reflect, you know, as, as a standardized reaction to things as it should be here. There's always the concern of, is it commercially sensitive? Is it a competitive advantage? Does it bias the market? Is it, is there a cybersecurity repercussions? And, and um, there's always a reason to say no. Sometimes there's a good reason to see, say no, but there isn't always a good reason to say no. And therefore we shouldn't always be saying no. Um, I'm just getting a bit grumpy now, but <laughs> I think that's, <laughs> that's that's part of what holds us back, honestly. Yeah, and there's always going to be that part of us that that wants to say no to certain things. I mean, you know, I work, I work in marketing, and I'm forever saying that no should be a big part of our vocabulary when hmm. a lot of it is is yes, sir, yes, boss. Um, let's just do that and and not have that structured approach. So uh, I'm all for saying saying no as well as yes um and i fundamentally see it here and and what you're saying there uh, I, I just want to move on a little bit uh, and and focus around decision making one thing that you that you wrote when you're talking about uh, data strategies and 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 why they fail uh, was data strategies fail not because we can't find or manage data um, I think that's that's quite obvious. You know, it, it's their data's all around us, isn't it? Uh, but because once we have it, we are often structurally and conceptually incapable of taking advantage of it, which kind of links to what we were saying previously. So, how if if we can get the data and we we, we know it is authentic and trustworthy, how do we utilize that to make decisions or impact our? our the, the future of an organization? What's the best ways of doing that? Yeah, uh, well, it, it varies enormously on the use case. But I think the, the first thing we need to think about is uh, the, the psychology of the decision we're making, right? So are we, are we genuinely approaching this problem with an open mind? Or are we trying to retrospectively justify a decision that we've already made? Um, there are a lot of biases, as we've already talked about in this industry mm -hmm. around the kind of decisions that we make, right? So a, a particular bugbear of mine of late is just building stuff in general, right? We are, by definition, an industry that rewards people for building things. 
um, and you kind of see this in the, I'm not going to name individual projects, but the cost benefit analysis of, uh, you know, constructing new infrastructure, there's always going to be a bias towards, well, you know, it's 50, 50 as to whether there's an ROI on this, or, but we should probably just do it because it gives us, it, it, at least we're doing something right. Um, Long story short, part of the answer is making sure that we are actually considering all of the data and all of the options rather than just trying to justify a decision that we've already made. Um, mm -hmm. I think there's then what we've already talked about, making sure that the data that we're providing people is an accurate reflection of reality, but is also like consumable by people. And I think that, that comes into the knowledge um, the knowledge creation cycle. We've all sat in meetings where someone's announced, well, we used to we used to write a Word document or do a PowerPoint, now we've got a dashboard, and they'll bring their dashboard up on screen and there's like 16 different graphs that you have to squint and be like, I'm not sure what that says. And then you actually ask a question about one of them and you, you get the answer, well, it's not, it's not up to date. Don't worry about that graph, look at all the other graphs. Um, and I think that's that's reflective of a culture that's sort of maybe not a culture, but a difficulty in actually integrating information into our decision-making process. Um, we confuse detail and providing lots and lots of detail with helping decisions, whereas actually, as you know, Kahneman and others have shown, we're actually really simple people when it comes to decisions. And so we should be trying to create a, a visual language or even a, a, an AI language of information that allows people to actually integrate data into their decision-making, which is probably, and I'm a big believer in Edward Tufte and people like that who, who write a lot about the aesthetics of presenting information. It's usually about having one really simple graph that summarizes the problem as best as possible. So that people can mm -hmm. actually digest it and understand it rather than Here's a vast array. It's the like minority report view of dashboarding, <laughs> where it's like I'm Tom Cruise and I'm surrounded in 16 screens and I can click and like nobody uses an interface like that, right? So that's when I talk about how being a data professional in this space is is in part about creativity. I think that's where the creativity comes in. Is it's about abstracting. It's about simplification. It's about presentation and aesthetics as much as it is about just here's a shed load of information now go and be quote unquote data driven because it's that's just mm -hmm. not how human beings are, are programmed we're lazy our brains look for simple answers and, and we need to kind of work with that rather than resist it to a yeah. certain extent yeah for sure i i was at that conversation in marketing that that's why we set objectives right so we set an objective and then we focus on achieving that and if that objective is to increase revenue, for example, and you've got a chart that shows an increase of revenue, then why do you need another four or five charts that show margin and profit and mm. all this kind of stuff? Because that wasn't the objective. Those are helpful, but on a, a, a smaller level, because that was not your objective. Um, yeah, and I find it baffling when you see a lot of different information and charts and it tells you loads of different stuff. But was that what you were trying to achieve? Is that what we set out to do? And I think it's mm. easy to lose sight of that. Yeah, I think there's also a discipline around having agreed sources of truth and the, the culture of making sure that those are actually what is used. Um, mm -hmm. I, I'm a big proponent, as you can probably tell, of giving people as much freedom to manipulate information as, uh, as they see fit, you know, Modern BI tools and stuff are great. I think there's a huge amount of value in, in allowing people to sell service analysis and be able to do part of that as part of their job, whether or not they're a, an analyst or not. But that cannot be licensed for multiple different versions of the truth competing with each other. I think it's a bit mm -hmm. of the it's a collaborate on the rules, compete on the game sort of thing. You know, you need to collaborate on creating those aggregated sources of information common common sources of information for organizations and then allow your colleagues the wider organization to come up with their interpretations and, and fight over the interpretations of that information rather than fighting over what is or is not the truth um, and I, I, again 
I work in a lot of places where the truth is whatever Bob's spreadsheet happens to say today. <laughs> uh, and if someone comes along with a nicer spreadsheet, then that becomes the truth. And I, I don't, again, it's not a healthy, it's not a healthy dialogue there. Mm -hmm. Looking towards the future then, or, or whenever I say future, it's it's almost like it's in, in the present now. Uh, there was one short statement that you made that said, um, recent developments in artificial intelligence have been nothing short of profound. In terms of this new tech, or however you want to call it, AI modeling and, and AI in general, how is that going to impact data and information and the way we utilize it going forward? I think it, it's about, it's the externalization. Does it allow us to accelerate the externalization of information, right? So these technologies are amazing. We all got extremely excited about them earlier this year. I feel like what we're starting to see is that they're kind of incredibly, unbelievably sophisticated models, but they are limited by what they're fed, right? So we've just pointed mm -hmm. them at the internet and said, again, going back to the idea of truth, here is objective reality. Everything on the internet, internet is true. Please just give us this really intuitive way of searching the entire internet and explain it back to us in plain English so that we understand it amazing it's not going to work for our sector because the level of truth required to maintain buildings and railways and power networks is higher than the level of truth that's possible from the internet no one is going to come up with a maintenance plan for critical national infrastructure by asking about it on a reddit forum and seeing what seeing what people come back with right that's a, that's a bad idea so we need to figure out a way of using these incredible techniques, but feeding them with the higher standards of in information that we already use. Um, unfortunately, and I think this is where the challenge is, our higher standard of information is not anywhere near as accessible as the internet. You know, it's spread across hundreds of different organizations, hundreds of different archives. You know, you've obviously got BSI and stuff like that, but even then, you know, to get to the corpus of information, you would have to integrate a huge range of different, um, often proprietary documents, probably do a lot of scanning and NLP and stuff and OCR in order to get there as well. So someone's going to do it. Um, it is going to, it is going to help because it's going to probably not give you exactly the right answer, but get you closer to the right answer faster. Um, and I think it's an amazing opportunity for someone, you know, if you're starting out in the industry, obviously I'm not encouraging people to stop talking to other people, but, you know, rather than just asking, you know, the more experienced engineer that works with you, what his opinion is, you, you can now basically ask something that's synthesized the opinion of thousands or millions of engineers over a period of many decades. That sounds like a massive opportunity to me, but mm. the data, the, the data quality problem is what's going to make or break whether that actually delivers the benefit that we hope it will as is always the case right yeah. garbage in garbage out yeah for, for sure i i always say that at this moment in time um, it's it's ai with hi so artificial intelligence combined with human intelligence yeah is the best way of, of looking at it um, yeah and and like you said working with other people is part of that intelligence yeah, there isn't a scenario where we just don't have engineers in 20 years. I honestly believe that. I think there's a scenario where those engineers are much more collaborative and, and yeah. data-driven and, and augmented by AI, but they're still going to be there. We're still going to need them, probably even more than we do right now. So chapter eight of your book is titled How to Be a <laughs> Data Person. And... Uh, the, 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 sub, the subsections in that are around how to be a, how to do this, how to do that. So I'm just going to ask you straight out rather than reel them off. How do we be a data person? <laughs> Again, trying to figure that out. I think um, <laughs> there was a bit of self-therapy in writing that section. I was going through quite a, quite a tricky time in work. Um, and I was trying to figure out why everything was so hard. Um, I, I think there was also trying to capture a little bit of the um, 
the opportunity, right? You don't, I've talked a lot about the professions. Coming back to professions is obviously oversimplifying to a certain extent, but it's not every day that a whole new field appears in in our sector in a way that it has appeared um, recently with data, right? I guess the closest we have to that is maybe when BIM became a thing a decade ago. Maybe it happens once a decade. Let's go with that. So there's obviously opportunities there in terms of technical capabilities and software and solutions and all the exciting things that we've talked about. But there's also kind of a cultural opportunity there in terms of we are one way or another bringing a new type of person into uh, into our organizations. How, how do we make sure that we're taking advantage of that opportunity, right? Because if, um, whilst I have talked at length about how a lot of this needs to be delivered through existing employees, there will nonetheless be data teams. So how do we how do we make sure that when we get permission to recruit those data teams that we, we're having a positive influence on, on the organizations that we work for? Um, and there's obvious, the obvious one is it's a chance to bring in diversity into our industry that hasn't always been there. Um, new perspectives, uh, neurodiversity as well. You know, you, one way or another, data people are going to have a slightly different character bent to someone that's decided to be an architect or a planner or something. Um, I'm not saying one's better than the other. They, they all have their place. Uh, and then on the flip side, when you have different types of people coming into quite well-established uh, hierarchical organizations where, you know, there are these roles that have existed for 50, 100 years, how, how do you how do you use these new people to influence those roles without it just becoming a bit of a, uh, you know, you don't understand, you haven't been here long enough, or no, you don't understand to get with the program and the future is here, AI everywhere, you know, it, you, you can see those those kind of uh, anyone that's worked in this space has experienced a little bit of that friction, right? Um, mm -hmm. Who are you, who are these trendy kids coming in and telling me how to do my job type of thing? And, and obviously, once you get to that point, you've kind of already lost. It's not going to end. Mm -hmm. It's not necessarily going to end well. And you you probably have screwed up a little bit in terms of your messaging if, if that's kind of the conversations you're having. So, mm -hmm. how do you how do you approach the challenge to? again, take advantage of the opportunity without unnecessarily just kind of running in and pissing everybody off for lack of a better way of describing it. One thing I, I wanted to, to end on, it's a bit of a step change away from data uh, and information, but still in, in that same field, is you ended this chapter uh, with uh, respect your own time and your mind learn and think about mental health. Those were um, three or four chapters that you finished, sub chapters that you finished chapter eight with. So is this something that you've learned while writing? Um, we all know it, that, that it's all important, but in terms of being involved in the data, how do you respect your own time and, and think or learn about mental health? I mean, that's something I've learned the hard way through number of experiences i think that the time element is the realization that there is a lot there's still a lot of presenteeism around here and um, and you know particularly when you're in the public sector there's a lot of uh governance and hierarchical reporting and that sort of thing and it, it can be very easy to realize that actually you're not in charge of your own time so before you start the work week it's already accounted for by the 500 meetings that other people have put in your calendar and i think that's initially quite flattering because it makes you feel important but in the long run it's completely unsustainable because you don't have any space to learn anything new uh, and going back to the previous conversation if you're a, if you're one of the few data people in an organization and you're not learning anything new then you're probably not going to be adding value for very long um, and then it has ramifications onto the mental health side of things where if you're not growing, if you're not, if you're not giving yourself space to reflect on your experiences and understand what you did wrong and what you might do better, 
uh, and to, to learn from other people, then you're probably not going to be happy. Maybe happy is the wrong word, but fulfilled in your career. And, and that will obviously have, you know, particularly for kind of career orientated people like us can have real repercussions into the rest of your life and, um, you know, start start affecting your family life and your, your, your life outside of work. And, so, and it's just a thing that we haven't been great at talking about. I think mm. mental health has too often been seen as something that only a select few people suffer from, um, something that you should probably not tell people about, uh, you know, and, you know, as long as you're not jumping under a bus, you're probably okay kind of thing. And I think that's a, that's quite a crude way of looking at mental health. We all, we all have mental health. We all have good days and bad days, um, and this this kind of urge that you get to to kind of hide that from other people is potentially quite dangerous. Particularly if you're operating in high pressure organizations or you're making decisions and, and, and trying to actually you can't make the world a better place without making yourself a better place first, right? Uh, absolutely, I think that's a a great way to to end this. Um, Ian, thank you so much for coming on and, and sharing uh, insights around data and our own well-being as a regular human um <laughs> the book data and the built environment when's it out next year sometime um it's probably not going to be in wh smith but it, it'll be on it'll be on the internet somewhere well as you might have guessed, I've seen snippets of it. Really interesting. You've got a great way of writing, a really interesting way of, of bringing all that information to, to the front and making it interesting to read. So um, thank you for, for letting me have a little sneak peek of, of that. Um, and for anybody that's listening in 2024 or beyond, uh, go and check it out. It's by Ian Gordon, Data and the Built Environment. Uh, Ian, once again, thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure. Yeah, really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you so much for taking the time out of your busy day and giving this a listen. If you want to chat further about anything you've heard on today's episode, have a topic or technology you'd like me to cover, or simply want to say, hiya, you'll find me on LinkedIn or through the emails, peter at builddifferent.marketing. Stay disruptive.